0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church sermon podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Uh, I, I, do, I do believe this is going to be a pretty short message. we we'll still probably be out of here before 8 o'clock. Uh, but I do want to take a little time tonight uh, To honor the legacy of a man, now dead, who made immeasurable contributions to the physical sciences. His groundbreaking thought and research uh, literally led to a whole new way of understanding the universe and how it works. And he is widely regarded as one of the finest intellects in all of history. And you know who I'm speaking about, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, who was working out a mathematical description of uh, planetary motion, the laws of physics, the things that govern the way things move and don't move, inertia, uh, or planetary orbits, gravity, of course, Uh, he discovered that the existing mathematical tools that he had at his disposal were inadequate to describe the things that he was theorizing. So, you know what he did? Some of you know what he did. He invented calculus. He invented a whole new uh, area of math in order to work out the theories that he was working on. And he worked these theories out. And uh, his, uh, for instance, his Principia is considered one of the most important books in all of scientific history. The things, the, the, and he was working, this was before he worked out all the calculus. He wrote this work on the, on the, uh, movements of heavenly bodies. And it absolutely, once again, literally revolutionized science. Uh, and this was in the 1600s. And his work was so advanced and so good and so correct that the, solutions that he worked out, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong here. may I just dawned on me. I've got a PhD in physics sitting over here. Uh, it's still the foundation of everything science is doing up to and including space flight. Uh, space flight, the, the, the uh, trajectories and the thrust and everything, uh, the energy needed to put a body into orbit is still based essentially on Newton's calculations all those years ago. That's how good he was. Newton was what they call a once-in-500-years brain. They say once in 500 years does an intellect like that come on the scene. He was also a Christian. Uh, and now there's been some relatively recent work done on his uh, journals that reveal some, well, I guess what we would call some unorthodox views um, and this gets into the details. And, and some of it is, you know, some of, I, I would have a problem with. It's not germane to what we're talking, t- talking about tonight because the point I'm trying to, trying to make to you is even though he might not have had what you and I would consider orthodox views on Christianity, he did, he was a confessing believer. And he, not only was he a confessing believer, he considered that the core of who he was. He saw himself first as a believer uh, and as one whose job it was to tell people about God, and in doing the science and in doing the math, he felt that what he was doing was simply unraveling the mystery uh, and the means by which God sent, set the universe into motion. Here is what he wrote He said, Gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets into motion. God governs all things. And knows all that is or can be done. He, wrote, he also wrote books on prophecy. He tried to puzzle out the end times. And he always uh, maintained the attitude that his role as a scientist was subservient to his role as a believer. He really did feel that the contributions he was making was simply to explain to people how God did what he did. And he took delight in that and expected people, to, uh, his readers, to take delight in that, his students. Now today, as many of you know, the world lost another great mind. Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking died. Uh, he held the uh, Lucasian professor of mathematics chair at the University of uh, Cambridge. This was a post once held by Newton himself. Uh, And his research into black holes, his book, A Brief History of Time, uh, brought him wide acclaim, made him a household name, made him a hero to many academics. And he was, of course, greatly admired for doing all this and grappling with all these deep uh, theoretical things while battling and being paralyzed by ALS. He is also considered one of these great minds. People talk about him. You You can just do a web search. Uh, Who's the greatest genius, scientific genius? And the three names that come up are Einstein, Newton, and Hawking. Uh, The guy was no slouch. But he made statements years ago as he's working through this stuff that led some, including guys like Ravi Zacharias, to say that they believed it was only a matter of time before Hawking himself came out as at least a theist. Which is one step closer to being a Christian. The the the, thing, the statements he was making and the work he was doing, many believed, uh, indicated that he was coming to the conclusion that the only real explanation for the origin of it all. You, you understand, when he says, he's going to come out as a theist, he's not going to say, I don't understand any of this stuff, it must be God. He's saying, I understand this much, and therefore... The only explanation must be God. This is what many people were expecting him to do because of some statements he had made, because of some work he was doing. And so, uh, you know, and backing up here, there, there has been, there, there continues to be some great work in mathematics and in cosmology uh, that points to the conclusion that the most reasonable expl- explanation for the existence of the universe uh, as we know it, is that it was created. And one of these that we're talking about and one of these things that Hawking himself referenced is the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, this is you know, one of the most famous atheists. Who was the guy that died just uh, a few years ago? Hitchens said that fine-tuning was the argument that he had the most difficult time arguing against. The fact that there are all these uh, details, all these laws, all these uh, quantities uh, such as things like the distance between the earth and the sun. If the earth were just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit further away from the sun, life wouldn't be possible. If the gravitational force or if the strong nuclear force or the weak nuclear force were off by just a millionth of a degree, these things, life would not be possible. And there there are dozens of these factors All throughout the universe, it's all connected. How everything holds together and spins around each other and distances and all this stuff that make life possible. And if any one of them was off by just the tiniest fraction, we wouldn't be here. And so mathematically, many people have come to the conclusion that this has to be designed. Even with the vastness of the universe, it's the very laws that that hold the universe together and give us the universe itself that dictate that it can't, it can't be random. And so these are the kind of things that Hawking, among others, was grappling with. So when his book, The Grand Design, came out, I think, in 2010, when that was released, there were a lot of people, all they wanted to see was what Hawking was going to say about God. Everybody thought when he writes this book, he's going to finally tell us what he thinks about God, and he did. And... uh where he landed on that particular subject, sadly was that God is not necessary for the universe to exist. I tell you this in preparation to tell you that we'll be closing the doors of living word family church because Stephen Hawking has determined that God is not necessary for the universe to exist. No, I'm kidding. Of course I'm kidding. He said, he himself said this, that science cannot disprove the existence of God. All I'm saying is that the laws of science are sufficient to explain the creation of the universe. That's all we need. What we know about the laws of science give us everything we need to know and understand about why the universe is here. He throws in the idea of the multiverse, meaning that something had to have spawned the universe. In other words, he at least recognizes... (laughs) That matter had to be there. This goes back. I'm just going to bore you with just for just a second because we do have time, with something that's called the Kalam cosmological argument, which simply says this Anything that has a beginning has a cause. Anything that has a beginning has a cause. And this is widely accepted. If something started, something started it. And so when we talk about the Big Bang, a lot of creationists think, ooh, Big Bang, that's evolution, that's, that's anti-God. No, it's not. It's a beginning. It means the universe has a beginning. People didn't always believe that. The steady-state theory, the universe just always was. It was just always there. Now we see, uh, you, know, the, 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 as we, you know, the observations we make, the astronomical ob- observations we make, see that everything's moving away from everything else, and we measure these distances as best we can, And it indicates that everything at one point seemed to be all close together. And the big bang indicates that there was a beginning. And therefore, if there was a beginning, something caused it. And what's our explanation? You know, I love, there used to be a t-shirt that says, I believe in the big bang. God said, God spoke and bang, it was. And that might be a simplistic way of expressing it, but I buy that. There was a beginning, and the beginning was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. But there was a beginning. That's a huge deal. And it's interesting that science backs that up. And Hawking himself recognizes there's a beginning to the universe, but he's saying, well, it was kind of a bubble, an offshoot of another universe. Well, what's that? What's the first question that comes into your mind? Where did that universe come from? There had to be a beginning. And once again, people say, well, okay, then. You're saying God caused it. Where did God come from? God doesn't have a beginning. Only that which has a beginning has a cause. God has no beginning and no end. It's one of the things that defines him. He's eternal. So, anyway, this disappointed a lot of people. And not just Christians, by the way. There were a lot of other scientists, non-believing scientists, who were disappointed with the... Uh, the quality of the science in uh, the grand design by Hawking. Here's where I'm going with all this. Well, it's not where I'm going with all of it. Let me, here's where I'm going with what I've said so far. If you are waiting for somebody like Stephen Hawking to confirm for you the existence of God, or for that matter, if your faith is shaken because somebody like Stephen Hawking says that God is not necessary for the universe to exist. There is something missing. There is something wrong with your relationship with God. I'm going to do this again. It's probably the third. I think it's the third. It might be the fourth time I've quoted this poem by Francis Thompson uh, called In No Strange Land. And I just give you this brief background just so that you understand the last few uh, lines in this poem. Francis Thompson lived in, uh, when was it? Anybody know? I don't even know the dates. He lived in London. He was a drug addict. Uh, he hung out on the River Thames with uh, a number of uh, you, know, you know, prostitutes, drug dealers, drug users, and, uh, and Charing Cross Station, which was sort of like Times Square used to be before Disney and uh, Wilkerson cleaned it up. Uh, this was, is was the bad part of town. And, uh, but he was also a genius. He was, he was an opium a- addict. Uh, but he was also a genius and uh, a great writer. And he wrote this poem that says, uh, let me see, it has a start. <sighs> a world invisible, we view thee. A world intangible, we touch thee. A world unknowable, we know thee. Inapprehensible, we clutch thee. Does a fish soar to find the ocean? An eagle plunge to find the air? that we ask of the stars in motion if they have rumor of thee there. Not where the wheeling systems darken nor our benumbed conceiving sores. The drift of pinions would we hearken beats at our own clay-shuttered doors. The angels keep their ancient places, touch but a stone and start a wing. Tis ye, tis your strange faces that have missed the many-splendored thing. But when so sad thou canst not sadder, cry, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder, pitch twixt heaven and Charing Cross. Yea, in the night, my soul, my daughter, cry, clinging heaven by the hems, and lo, Christ, walking on the water, not Gennesaret, but Thames. This, I've read this poem a hundred times, and I get goosebumps when I read it, because it really speaks to me. And those opening lines, look, a fish doesn't have to think about where water is. An eagle doesn't have to know where air is. Why are we looking to the stars and seeking the opinion of those who view the stars to, uh, to tell us whether or not there's a God when God himself says what? I am with you. Where is God? Out there? Yeah, he's out there. He's also right here. And he's right here. If we're having a hard time believing in him, a hard time seeing him, seeing him, that is our problem. And it's almost certainly because we are not listening. We want proof before we'll pay attention. Not we. I mean we as a human race. Well, sure, you show me rock-solid proof that God exists, and then I'll hear what you had to say about Jesus. And that brings us to Romans chapter 1. This is somewhere we're going to be in a few weeks on Sunday mornings, as you know, we're going to wrap up Acts and get into Romans. But you're going to get a preview tonight. I'm going to practice some self-restraint and not, need, not read everything I want to read Uh, We are in Romans chapter one. I'm just going to begin in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, listen to this, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You'll hear me say this again, but there's no way I can read this and not say it now. You'll hear me say this when we get to Romans chapter 1 on Sunday mornings. Romans chapter 1 is something you need to spend time in. As a believer living in the last days, this is the passage more than any other single passage that describes the world we live in. And that last verse really gets it. It's not just that people are doing bad things. It's that we live in a world that celebrates bad things. Literally parades bad things and don't think i'm thinking about one bad thing because i'm not you it's the media in general but it's it's not just the media either it might be driving some of it but it's life and it's not just well these things it'd be better if we didn't do these things right there the people who do these things according to the law now keep in mind Paul is building up here in the first few chapters. It's a dark, scary picture, but it's under the law. The message Paul is getting to is grace. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's preaching that the gospel is necessary, that, the gospel, that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection was necessary because man was so sinful. So once he say, these things that the whole world is not just doing but celebrating, those who practice them are worthy of Death. That's the Bible. And here we are celebrating them. We think it's great. Now, that's really not where I'm going tonight. That's that's the preview part. I want you to go back to verse 18 again. I'm going to read it just a few verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, listen to this, suppress the truth in unrighteousness, That's, I want you to highlight that, underline it, something, make a little mark in the margin, because that tells us a lot. It's not ignorance, it's suppression of the truth. I am so dedicated to my unrighteous ways that I am going to suppress the truth that conflicts with my unrighteous ways. Because... What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Manifest in them. I take this verse to mean that there is something inside every man that simply knows there is a God. I'll come back to that in a minute. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. What's he saying here? I think he's referring to two different things, the inward witness and the outward witness. He's saying that what is inside us responds with belief in God. If we are honest and if we are right, right in heart, we are what we are responding to is the clear, the obvious truth that what we are seeing around us is created. Now, the Enlightenment mindset says that, uh, and this is an invented narrative. I do not think history bears this out, but the narrative of the Enlightenment is, well, mankind was looking around uh, you know, in ages past, trying to explain the world around him, and since he was so ignorant and didn't have the science, didn't have the knowledge, he made up this idea of God to explain what he couldn't explain. Uh, but as we have gathered knowledge, now we have a better explanation. That's not how belief in God came about. I understand it. In one, in one sense, it makes sense, but that's not what history tells us. The belief in God was there from the beginning, and there is a strong, uh, for those of you, and I know it's a handful of you, uh, and I don't say that insulting. I only have I can only go so far with this stuff. I like popular apologetics. A guy like William Lane Craig is, is hard going for me, but he's got an excellent book called Reasonable Faith. Uh, and in the beginning of it, he talks about the fact that the very, I, the very fact that we can conceive of the idea of God is evidence that God exists because there's nothing around us that says, here's what God is like. We look at creation, and this is what Paul is saying, uh, and, but it's not a, what Paul is not saying is, wow, this is so great, we can't figure out how it got made, so we'll just make up God. He's saying that the idea of God in the previous verse, in them, is the natural and appropriate response to creation. I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. You need a professional apologist to explain this, but I believe Uh, I'm at least getting a little bit of that point across. He's saying there's something in us that believes in God. And when we look around at the, at the created world, that's what we should honestly respond with. Wow. I'm part of this. So I was made too. What am I saying? They know. They all know this is a bedrock truth that we must embrace if we are going to live the gospel and preach the gospel. They know God is real. He is there, says Francis Schaeffer, and he is not silent. He's left a witness. And no matter how much and how vigorously they protest, there is a core, there is a kernel, there is something in the center of their being that knows there is a God and is ready to respond to him. If we go into a conversation with an unbeliever thinking that it's all on us to convince them of something that they have no concept of, we're going to be lacking the confidence. But if we go into this conversation knowing that there's something in them that was created to believe. And all we're doing is reaching out and making a connection to that because God made it manifest to them. We will have more confidence. Somewhere deep inside, they know. And I'm telling you right here, just as sure as I'm standing here, that Stephen Hawking was not looking for reasons to find God. And he was not simply going where the evidence leads. He was looking for reasons not to need God darwin was the same way i wish i i if i did a little more digging i might be able to find this if i can get my hands on the physical textbook i i I had at one time i will but uh this is i may have told this story before a girl came into my office uh a kid in youth group in farmer city with her textbook they were studying darwinism they were studying evolution and it was an introduction to uh, darwin's voyage on the beagle and uh it talked about how he was really struggling because somebody very dear to him, I don't think it was a daughter, I think it was a niece, but a young niece, I think, had died. And he really loved this girl, and he was mad. He he felt it was unfair, it didn't make sense, and therefore, this was his driving passion because he just couldn't grapple with a God that could allow this. And so he began to look for another explanation for life. Do you understand how significant that is? Do you know what we call that? That's an agenda. I'm going to find not, hey, I'm interested in nature. I'm going to go out. You know, here's Newton. He believes in God. And you say, well, that's an agenda too. Okay, fair enough. But don't just say nobody is that completely objective. And Darwin certainly wasn't. He was looking for a reason not to believe in God. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Remember him? Let me read this quote by him. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics he is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. This is his goal. This is is what drives him. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. That's a pretty honest statement. Can I boil this down into a sentence? I wanted to have as much sex guilt-free as I possibly could, so I purposely decided there was no God. Now, let me conclude here by saying that I am not saying that all atheists are dishonest. The word does tell us, though, in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53 that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Atheism has been around a lot longer than the Enlightenment. This is one of the also, also the biggest lies. Everybody used to believe in God until science and knowledge and everything caught up. Atheism has been around just about as long as mankind has been around. And the Bible bears this out. There were atheists in David's day. There were atheists long before David's day. And he writes about them. Atheism is a product of foolishness. Romans 1, uh, where is it? 22 says that professing to be wise, they became fools. So it's, again, it's not that they're dishonest. They really don't believe. But they don't believe because they made a decision not to believe. You know what I'm saying? They want to live a certain way, and so they on purpose adopt a belief system that allows them to live that way. But I am convinced that still somewhere deep down inside there is a moral core, then they know there is a God. I also know I'm talking to a room full of believers. So what's the point in all this? Praise and Worship team, you can be coming up here. As I mentioned to the men the other night, apologetics rarely converts anyone. But it is good to have an answer. It's good to have a defense. Not just for their sake, but for our sake. When somebody challenges you with this stuff, it's good to have these answers to know that It might not satisfy them, but it's not like nobody's ever thought about this stuff before. There really is nothing new under the sun. Also, I want to warn you by way of reminder, because you know this, that our faith is reasonable, but it is not based on reason, certainly not based on reason alone. Most of you have heard this statement. In fact, I want you to complete it for me. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a, it's a relationship. Do you believe that? I do too. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just read it off. And I thank Jesus, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Is that, oop, I got the wrong, wrong one? Is that it? Sorry. That's not what I wanted to read. It's 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. There is a difference. Now listen, it, don't get me wrong. It is important to know what you believe. There's a great difference. It's old. It's from the 70s. Uh, and I know it's available on audio. It's probably available to this day. called Know What You Believe. Paul Little is the guy who did it. Two-part. Know what you believe. Know why you believe. It's good stuff. But here's Paul's... What's Paul saying here? I know whom I have believed. Not just about whom. Not just what I believe. He has a relationship I don't know facts, I don't know religion, I know Jesus. Stand up with me while I ask you this question. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.